Recorded live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first Back from Vacation episode of 42 Minutes. I'm I'm here, Doug, with Will, and today we are talking about the tricky truth of the super story, as found in Jeffrey Kripal's latest book, Mutants and Mystics, and the revelation about that secret knowledge, which is all about sex. (laughs) (laughs) And so we're speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Kripal, who's the J. Newton Raisin Professor of Philosophy and Religious Thought and the Chair of the Department of Religious Studies at Wright University. He's the author of six books, including Esalen, America, and The Religion of No Religion, and Authors of the Impossible, Paranormal, and the Sacred. Should we call you Doctor? <laughs> how, how about just Jeff? Okay. Well, it's great to have you, Jeff. Um, oh, well, thanks for having me. I it's such it. a treat to have you. And before before we get into our discussion, I just want to congratulate you on on producing such a wonderful book. I love music, mutants and mystics. I mean, even if if it wasn't as thoughtful as it as it was, it's so beautiful. the The yellowed front matter of this thing just tickles me every time I open it and so and the artwork is so beautiful so thank you and wonderful yeah well that's that's of course the artwork is is not me I mean it's it's a man named Michael Bram who who worked very closely with me and uh and uh did manage to pull that off at the press the press really went went uh, all out uh, to produce something that was physically beautiful and and hopefully interesting. I'm I'm responsible for the words. Michael's responsible for the images. So, but I have to, you you direct you had a uh, guiding hand in this. The the love comes out definitely. Yeah, well that's true. Most of the images in the book are from my private collection, and much of that private collection was built up while I was writing the book. So it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and it was a work of love for sure. Well, I want to congratulate you on reaching your goal of creating this uh, talisman to uh, initiate mutation, as it were. Good. Because it, it certainly worked for me. I mean, it's it's hard to discuss this book because one one's a little confused on where to start. <laughs> but well, I've got something to start with. Here's here's a, a funny little thing that I picked up um, in the book you mention that Jonathan Livingston Siegel totally confused you. <laughs> and and so it's 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 a curiosity to me because Jonathan Livingston Siegel's transcendent journey is is uh is is a is funny in light of what the super story and mutants and mystics is all about. Could you explain why that confused you as a as a kid and if it still confuses you? Well I was just I was just confessing my own childhood there. I mean, as a, you know, 10, 11-year-old boy, I was completely absorbed in these, these superhero comics. But I remember going to the movies to see the film version of Jonathan Livingston Sailor. I was just totally, completely baffled by it. I had no way of tapping into what was being communicated. And uh, I, so that was sort of part of the point I was trying to make in that part of the book was, these these forms of popular culture carry things that 
you know, may not be picked up uh, consciously, but somehow get communicated on other levels. And and I suspect that that that's what was happening with me as a as a boy for sure. Because uh, well, I, I, I didn't consciously understand any of it. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Personal level, I found Jonathan Livingston Siegel through illusions. Uh huh. The and and what uh, this was something that I learned from your book as well because I didn't know I didn't know that Bach had anything to do with um, Stargate or or the remote viewers at all. Right. Which made a, I, because uh, in the movie, I've read uh, books by McMonagall before. Right. And and in the movie. Uh, men who stare at goats. Uh, it was obvious that somebody had done the research, but when they started cloud busting, that was something that I had totally picked up from uh, Bach. Right. And uh, I thought that was I thought that was interesting because uh, in your book did that a lot to me. There was a there. I have been on this journey of um, like illusions. I saw illusions like three or four times. I saw it on a bus. I saw it. I'm like, what is this book? And then I went into a bookstore when I was at the DMV trying to get my license renewed, and it was right on top of the stack. So I said, I'll pick this up. Finally, I'll, I'll get to figure out what this book is. And it changed my world. Um, since I stepped into synchromysticism, I've found John Keel through that. I have found Fort through that. I have found um, – there's so many uh, – oh, Palmer. I discovered the whole history of Palmer. Um and a, a, a few others that we've talked about on this. What another thing that blew my mind is uh, this book uh, by I think his name is Lloyd John Uri Lloyd. Yeah, John Uri Lloyd. Yeah, uh-huh. Eddie Dorpa. Ed, pronounce that again. I don't know. I mean, I pronounce it Eddie Eddie Dor Eddie Dorpa. It, it's it's Aphrodite backwards. Um, you know, it, this is this late 19th century uh, hollow earth novel that you're referring to, right? Right, yes, sir. Um, yeah. The reason, the only reason that I know about that is because somebody sent me uh, an email one time telling me that I was the character in that book. Oh, they said, God. have you ever heard of uh, the anti-Mason William Morgan? Have I? No, I have not. I have not. There is a, there's a story of an individual named Captain Morgan or, or Will Morgan who is going to print uh, the secrets of the Freemasons, and uh-huh. he, he disappeared. Um, it's a very famous story. I think it, uh, the first time I saw it was on the History Channel or something. I was like, hey, that guy's got the same name as me. What the story of Will Morgan, where he was going to print um, the the secrets of the Freemasons and then disappeared, is how uh, Eddie Dorpa starts out. Right. Right. Yeah. Of- right in the study there. That's right. Yeah. Well, in a way, this is kind of like a, a little Jungian sink wink to me. Right. As soon as I read that, because you were talking about Hollow Earth, and I was like, well, there's no way he's going to mention this obscure Eddie Dorpa book, because that, me trying to find that book, and I did find it online, I haven't read it yet, but it led me to uh, uh, The Coming Race, right. which I am reading right now. Right. So all of a sudden, that's how you jumped off on the book, and I was already so excited, I could already feel my cells mutating. Right. And it, what, what's remarkable about those those two books you just named is how contemporary they read. I mean, uh, The Coming Race was written in the you know 1860s, 1870s, and Eddie Dorpa was right at the end of the century. But, I mean, they're just filled with 
motifs that are still on, you know, the silver screen and just go to the movies. I mean, they're they're very contemporary in some ways. Uh, and that's what I was trying to show. That was one of the things I was trying to show in the book was that, you know, this super story, as I call it, has a has deep roots and it's been developing for a long time. It's not just something that's popped into view in the last few decades. Could you briefly sketch the super story? Yeah, well, the su- the super story is is my term for this this sort of large framework in which all of these uh, smaller mythologies are are slotted. I think, and it 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 spins out of, of what I call six myth themes or mythical tropes, and the the first one is orientation, and this is the 19th century theme of the land of mystery or, or superpowers being somewhere in the Orient or or somewhere far, far away, on the, but still on planet Earth. Sometimes in planet Earth, sometimes a hollow Earth, sometimes one of the poles, sometimes Africa, but usually India or China or, 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 or the Himalaya Mountains or somewhere far, far away. And, and that's very much a trope of, you know, British colonialism and the colonial era. And then that starts to break down after we pretty much colonize the globe. Um, but then modern cosmology comes online, you know, uh, end of the 19th, early 20th, and you get a, a novel like H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, which itself was modeled on British colonialism, by the way. But but now the, the colonialists are uh, not coming from another country. They're coming from outer space. And... And I call that myth theme alienation, the the myth the myth theme of the alien, the invading alien, or the the alien as bestower of wisdom, and and that really takes off in the first couple decades of the of the 20th century, and then you get um, World War One, World War Two, and the dropping of the atomic bombs, and the whole myth theme of of radiation that that atomic energy is somehow going to change us or is going to uh, be able to bestow superpowers both I guess politically with with the superpowers but also uh, mythically with with superheroes which get most of their superpowers from some kind of radioactive uh, accident and then later with the with the discovery of DNA in the 1950s you get this myth theme of mutation which really uh, comes online in the 1960s, um, and um, so those are the three central myth themes: uh, alienation, radiation, and mutation. And then eventually, what you get is the artists and authors get very sophisticated and begin to realize that they're writing a story that's in some sense writing them, and that we're all caught in these cultural stories. And so you get these last two myth themes of what I call realization, which is simply the experience of realizing one is caught in a story that one did not write. And authorization oh. is the is the movement out of that uh, to where we can begin authoring our own story and not being defined or caught in, in, in a story that was uh, written before us. And one of and the... That, and that whole thing together, that whole two-century process I'm calling the super story... And you can take virtually any work of science fiction or, or graphic novels or film, and you can read it through, you know, one or two or six of those myth themes. They just they come up over and over, 
and over again. And and so what I'm arguing is that popular culture is is just this generator, this one huge two-century-long experiment in trying to, you know, figure out the story we're in and, and write ourselves out of it. So that, your but, own your own origin in 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 relation to the orientation myth theme has you in Calcutta having a mystical experience? Is this something that you talk about? Well, I open the book, of course, with this confession, which which isn't much of a confession because I've written about it before, but I thought it was relevant to the book because it it's a it's a it, you know the book. Mutants and Mystics is not just about abstract myth themes and and pieces of fiction. The argument is is that the fiction is based on on factual experiences. That people actually have these experiences of being radiated or being mutated or or being alienated, as it were, and that that's why the the stories are so powerful. It's because on some level they're true, and and so I you know interviewed and read a lot of these artists and authors and and wrote about their own paranormal experiences. And I thought it was only fair for me to tell my own story. If I'm going to tell everybody else's story, it's fair I tell my own. So I started, the, the book starts out in some sense with me um, in Calcutta in 1989 researching my dissertation on a Hindu tantric saint named Ramakrishna. And um, during Kali Puja, which is this elaborate, gorgeous, multi-day festival and right around our own Halloween dedicated to the goddess Kali I had this out-of-body experience and a a kind of zapping uh, while I was uh, asleep one night in early early November of 1989 and and I relate that to a lot of these you know these myth these these stories of the artists and authors I've been I actually love how you relate it to <clears throat> the symbiotic relationship of the black costume to uh, Spider-Man as he is taken over um, while he is laying down. Right. With the symbolism of Kali standing over um, crap. It, the, the name of who? Shiva. Who's... Shiva is is her husband. The, the 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 iconography of the goddess Kali in in tantric Hinduism is a, this black multi-armed, uh, almond-eyed uh, goddess standing over a sleeping or, or dead male, uh, sometimes with a, an erection, actually. And, spider lady. Uh, yeah, basically, spider lady. And uh, and I I was always fascinated. I mean, uh, I spent almost a decade of, decade of my life just writing about Kali, and at some point I realized that her eyes were... Essentially, Spider-Man's eyes, or, or if you prefer, Spider-Man's eyes were Kali's eyes, and so I, I became fascinated in that, that precise um, resonance, and and um, and if you look at the Spider-Man story as it plays out over the decades, it it looks remarkably like the Kali mythologies in India. In India. See, it helps me out a lot because <clears throat> what I do is I watch movies and see common themes uh, flow through actors' careers. Um, uh, For instance, say, Keanu Reeves. So Keanu Reeves plays the autobiographical character of Philip K. Dick in Scanner Darkly. Um, He plays uh, Neo in The Matrix, which was inspired by by Philip K. Dick. 
and that 1977 interview that he did basically saying that we were living in a computer program and that deja vu was the glitches in the matrix and so forth. And then, um, you know, of course, you can use like Bill and Ted's Great Adventures, how the the future influences the past, and he's actually talking to himself like Philip K. Dick did in Radio Albermuth. But when I was watching his movies, I kept getting this uh, redhead Babylon. Um, I, I considered the the redhead woman as Babylon, and uh-huh. I kept I kept seeing her stuck into this Beauty and the Beast theme, like the strength card in uh, Crowley's deck, and I had associated her to the spider lady. I kept seeing this threat, and I had realized that Mary Jane is Spider-Man's Babylon, if that makes sense. <laughs> when yeah. you put it, it, like, opened my head up to, I, I realized what it meant at that point. Right. When, you, when you made that connection between Kali and Spider-Man and the insectoid. And I love how Streber connects to this, too, as far as the alien abduction. I mean, would you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah. Uh, I, the, you mean, you want me to talk about Whitley? Or, well, yeah. Or the Whitley and and the, the alien abduction is very common to the symbiotic relationship to the black costume and Peter Parker. Right. As right. he experiences it laying down, as you did in Calcutta. Right. Right. Well, most, you know, most alien abductions uh, take place uh, in bed. Which which is very significant, and we know a lot about these experiences through anthropology and, and folklore studies, and um, particularly through an author named David Hufford, who who wrote a book on what he calls supernatural assault traditions, which are these experiences you see coded in folklore around the world of people being abducted or assaulted, or interestingly enough, liberated or illuminated by beings who come in while they're asleep and paralyzed and uh, essentially get on top of them. And um, and so this, this, of course, is the classic structure of the alien abduction narrative as well, but it links into all this other folklore around the world of, of similar sorts of experiences. And it shows up in the, the superhero comics and in science fiction uh, as well because it appears to be a kind of universal uh, um, basis of, of, of these sorts of stories and these sorts of experiences. And, of course, my experience in Calcutta was of that nature. I, I was on my back. I, I woke up paralyzed. A, a being of energy came into the room and, and overtook me in a, in a very terrifying but also extremely pleasurable way. Um, and, of course, this was similar to Whitley Strieber's experiences in 1985 that he first laid out in his book Communion, which becomes kind of a, the archetype or the format for for the alien uh, after that. And, and so I end the book with a long chapter study of Whitley's five or six or seven or eight books on, on that experience. And of course, that, he had a spider lady as well. Right. His, his, he calls them the visitors, and he, he, he comments extensively on their insectoid uh, nature, uh, I mean, one of the most striking images in the book for me was the drawing of the the uh, alien by by one of the abductees that you just kind of squint your eyes. It, it looks exactly like Spider-Man, essentially. And um, even when you get uh, the first abduction experience we have on record in the States of any length, the Betty and Barney Hill uh, experience, if you read that book, 
uh, and you look at Barney's drawings of the alien's eyes, they look like a, a child's drawing of Spider-Man again. So there's some something is going on there. Steve Ditko, the uh, the artist who created Spider-Man, I don't know what he was reading or seeing or or, or experiencing or just imagining, but but it has this. It has this weird resonance with what later becomes the alien abduction literature, and, and I don't, I don't claim to understand that. I'm just trying to plug into that and, and comment on it and, and identify it, really. Hey. Um, and, and, and of course, just one more thing, Doug. Well, I mean, of course, when you get to the Black Spider-Man, the Black Spider-Man, of course, is an alien, literally. I mean, mm-hmm. the the suit is an alien symbiote, and it literally is alien. So, <laughs> well, you know, what do we do with that? I, I you know, I'm not. I'm it's not there. Sure. There's no way you can deny that it's there. There's, there's no way. Um, especially according to our frame of thinking and what we call our sync goggles or whatever is making free associative, uh, right. like that. Uh, it, and it's you can you can see how it relates to Philip K. Dick in his book Valis. How halfway through the movie, all of a sudden, he gets all the answers he needs from from pop culture, from, right. from a movie. Right. Right, and, and of uh, course, I, but Philip Dick, of course, is a central character in my book as well, because he's a perfect example of what we're talking about here, where where the paranormal is, is communicated through the the lenses and, and stories of, of, of a pop cultural genre, in his case, science fiction. Now, the interest for me in Philip K. Dick is... Number one, what a great writer he was, but then number two, how it seemed like what his main subject was, was his own madness, where to proceed with what he was doing really took him out of sorts with what we perceive as normal reality. How do you navigate that landscape of this well, this, you know, this comes up a lot. Um, you know, this, to, to take take something dear to your heart, synchronicity, which is dear to my heart as well. Um, I mean, synchronicity is a very common experience in perfectly healthy, normal human beings. But it's also it kind of runs wild in in schizophrenia. If you've if you've ever talked to a schizophrenic patient or or, or person suffering from it their their synchronicities are just kind of out of control and a lot of them are uh imagined and, and some of them may in fact be the actual synchronicities and and dick was aware of this actually he was very much aware of the similarities between say his experience of valis and some of the symptoms of schizophrenia he thought of it very much the way i think about it so i think of, excuse me Oh, no, go on. So here's basically the way I think about these things is we we normally exist in a in an, an egoic frame of mind. We we sort of walk around the world as a as an isolated independent ego um that we imagine is somehow suspended in a in a body and, and contained in a skull. Um when in fact uh, there's really no good evidence that consciousness is is produced by this body or certainly contained in it and much of psychical and paranormal phenomena suggests the exact opposite that mind and consciousness extend throughout the environment and and that they're somehow fed in or filtered through this brain and body 
But to get to that larger mind or sense of self, usually what has to happen is some kind of damage or trauma has to happen to the ego or the, the brain body. And and so, for example, people don't tend to have out-of-body experiences, you know, uh, sipping tea uh, uh, at Starbucks. They they tend to have out-of-body experiences in car wrecks and, and during heart attacks. I mean, something pretty traumatic has to suppress the ego. And there are many, many ways to suppress or damage uh, or, or stop that ego filter. And one of them is through mental illness. Um, and so I think it makes perfect sense that people who are suffering um, some kind of, of mental illness often are also swimming in a, a kind of synchronistic and, and mystical worldview because their their egos are dissolving. And, and, and the problem there is you need an ego to, to sort of survive and to come back and to live in society. So... Most of us who have these synchronicities or these mystical experiences or these out-of-body experiences, they're very temporary for us, and we come back into our egos, and we can kind of, you know, survive them, as it were, and be inspired by them. But people who who have no stable ego, who are, are mad, as we say, or crazy, if we want to be more colloquial, they have really no way of, of coming back, and, and they sort of, they're drowning in the same waters, as it were, that other people just sort of dip their toes. Um, so I don't, I don't see those two things as mutually exclusive at all. I do not see madness and mystical experiences as ex- exclusive realities. I think they often go together uh, very powerfully. Um, We've talked about this before. However, I want to know what you think about how this relates to sex being the small ego death. A sex was well, the same thing. I mean. Look, there are lots of ways, again, to suppress the ego, and um, uh, car wrecks do it, uh, uh, drugs can do it, uh, orgasm can do it. And, um, and I think, for again, for a lot of people, sexual arousal and intense orgasm somehow, we don't really understand how, trigger these, these altered states of, of, of mind, and, and uh, the paranormal comes rushing in. Uh, during or or around sexual activity, I think that's that's quite common, actually. But again, it, the question is, um, what do we do with that, and and how do we survive those, and how do we then integrate that into our 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 our, our ego lives, as it were? It um, seems you were using the character uh, Jean Grey and Phoenix in X Men, kind of in in this portion of the book a little bit, and how. Are are our bodies strong enough to like remove the filter, or you know, and this that's the question: Are we moving? Are we evolving in in a direction where where we'll be able to open more to the cosmic consciousness, or is this something that you know we'll only dip our toes in? Right. And so, so the que- the question that you know, well, well, to begin with, the the Jean Grey analogy I think is a perfect analogy because Jean Grey, of course, is the super psychic who ends up being destroyed by by this Phoenix consciousness. That and her name is Grey. Her name is Grey, hinting at aliens or yeah, or the, the classical Grey alien. Yeah, I actually never I never put that one together, but that's that's right. Um, 
But, you know, my, again, part of that's autobiographical for me. When I had my own experience in Calcutta, my first assumption within the experiences was that I was going to die. Uh, the energies were so intense that I thought I was being fried or electrocuted. So these were not subtle things. And and I think that's the experience for many people, is they're just so overwhelming that... Um, you know, one ha- one needs to come back to sort of normal reality, as it were, and, and go get a cheeseburger just to just to kind of make it through the next day. Because the question is always, particularly with psychical phenomena, the question is 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 not just how do these things happen? How how do I know that my grandmother's going to die a day before she dies? Or how do I know my my loved one is in danger a thousand miles away? The the other question is why don't we know that all the time? Why doesn't everybody have these experiences? Why do only some people have these experiences? And and the the answer uh, uh, seems to be that the ego is is thicker and thinner with different people. Some people are very have very permeable ego boundaries and seem very susceptible to these experiences, and other people have very thick very healthy, strong egos to the point where they experience none of this. And and so they're quite they're being very honest and, and and very sincere when they don't believe a word of this. Um but you just shift to another ego and another more permeable boundary and you run into people who have these things all the time. So so clearly we're de- dealing with different kinds of psychological structures and different kinds of capacities here. And your book, Mutants and Mystics, basically is a collection of these different levels of permeable egos. Of this collection of mutants and mystics, who are who are some of your favorites out of this bunch of mystics? And I mean, we would call them crazies too on this level. Oh, I I just adore all of them. I you know I mean this everybody from Charles Fort to the, to Ray Palmer and Richard Shaver to you know, my my two favorites are probably Dick and and uh, Streber. Um, I never had the opportunity to meet um, Dick, but I I know Whitley quite well, and uh, I I just think these people are amazing, and that they're struggling with some of the most important questions a human being can ask, and and we don't really have the answers, uh, but I think we have the ability to to ask the questions better and to get closer. So really, I mean, really, the other thing the book is about, of course, is that the people with the most permeable boundaries appear to be artists and writers, right? And and not just artists and writers, but people who are creative in some sense, who can open themselves up to to other realities, tend to be attracted to you know disciplines like art and 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 literature, and and, and so that's. Really- something to do with right brain individuals or do you think that this has to do with some kind of set plan where um, these these individuals are given these mystical experiences to disseminate this information and, and, and stimulate others? I think it's both. I mean, as you know, having looked at the books, I, I deal a lot with the right-left brain stuff. I mean, the artists and the, and the authors invoke that constantly and I, and I think I think we're living in a culture that's almost totally dominated by the left brain. And but the truth is that we have two brains in there and they're transmitting very different forms of mind and knowledge and 
And just because we live in a culture that values only the left brain stuff, the math and, and the technology and the reason and the, the linear time, doesn't mean we don't also experience those those moments of, of transcendence and eternity and, and pure consciousness that, that get beamed through the right brain. And, Have you ever and, heard of Michael Perlslinger or Perlslinger? Oh, oh, sure. Yeah, I, I think I referenced Persinger in the book. He... Um, that you're talking about the neuroscientists in Canada. Right. Yeah. And uh, his beliefs on the God helmet. And I, I read his book. I found his book, The Transient Event. I can't remember the whole title, where he took Fort and he took Kells. Right. And, and I think I, I find that working all the time because for a while there I was watching uh, MUFON and other sites and watching for uh, flaps, UFO flaps, and Every time, man, you'd get a buildup of uh, UFOs and weird lights in the sky, and then that area would have an earthquake. Yeah. It's, it seems that his ideas on these elect- electromagnetic buildups, which, mean, which could mean that these things are coming from the Earth, that it is just electromagnetic charge built from so, the Earth by yeah. at orientation. Yeah. Persinger is so interesting because you, I've read a lot of Persinger, and you read a lot of Persinger, and it sounds extremely reductive. Like, he thinks, um, you, you can walk away with the impression that all of these experiences are simply hallucinations produced by electromagnetic currents interacting with the brain. Right. But um, you read other parts of Persinger, and it's not so clear, and he seems quite open to the possibility that you know, there's a there there out there that 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 we are interacting with something, um, and that we of course shape it into a form we can imagine or deal with. But but that doesn't mean that it's simply a function of, of brain chemistry. So, and that's really the question of the book, isn't it? Um, whether the imagination is isn't isn't more than the imagination. Whether whether the imagination isn't also aware of something that's really there and then shaping it into forms that, that we can deal with. As as we have this conversation, I can't help but think of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and since yesterday was World UFO Day, it just seems to me that this that's the mothership and devil's tower just really symbolize in a nutshell this whole conversation where You've got the non-local consciousness and these people that are drawn to it, like moths, but then the kundalini energy inherent in this lit-up structure on top of a, a spine, but at the same time, the strange sexual imagery. Do you think Steven Spielberg consciously understood that when he put that movie together? Or is this just... I don't think he, I don't think he would have... Um elaborate that particular interpretation. I, I, my guess is that Spielberg was, was very, very um, interested in UFOs and, and quite serious about it. I mean, he had both Jacques Vallée and J. Allen Hynek on set as consultants. So clearly the movie was more than just a work of fiction. He was trying to communicate something to the culture. And the fact that... Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Well, the fact that the main character is essentially psychic, right? I mean, the whole movie is, 
is wrapped around, you know, the central character making a mountain out of mashed potatoes in his own yard and eventually the Devil's Tower. So, I mean, the, the whole thing works around a precognition, right? Right. So uh, It beautifully treats that madness where we want to identify with the character because he seems so normal, but he's getting sucked into this world where where he's in the room at, with the government and the guy's standing up and talking about Bigfoot. And you're like, no, no, this is serious and real. I, <laughs> I like right. Barry Smith. Barry Windsor Smith was an interesting story that I had no idea about it. The funny thing is, is you mentioned, you mentioned alternate states and how his uh, individual experience with the swirling balls of energy and stuff was so similar to what happens in uh, altered states. And then later you mentioned how his comic book about the the UFO sighting that he had was so close to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We had already made that connection between those two movies earlier because they both star Bob Balaban and how Bob Balaban is both the midwife at, for the altered states. He's kind of like the one who uh, watches over Hurt while he's in this too, but he's also the uh, valet character's uh, interpreter. Huh? Yeah, I didn't put that together. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a there's a relationship to those two movies, and, and a sync, especially for this show that we've talked about. Those there's a relationship. Another thing that you dropped on me that I found extraordinary was the whole X Men, because I never could see the symbolic uh, importance of Magneto, but him being it, it the Animal magnetism blew my head wide open. <laughs> I know it's pretty obvious once you see it, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I'll tell you, I watched. Uh, have you seen uh, Dangerous Method yet? The movie. I did. Uh, I, I did. I just watched it actually. Yeah. I had an epiphany the other day because basically, uh, Fassbender, the guy who played Young, is Magneto in the new X Men First Class. Oh, is he? Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, if you smash those two characters together, you realize that that whole movie, uh, Dangerous Method, is about the the intellect of Freud or the 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 categorization of Freud, the scientific mind of Freud. It's kind of the Xavier character, and then he and then Young is the Magneto character again, the the sexual, right. and and it, it crosses over too because Freud is played by Viggo Mortensen, who is Aragorn, right, and the the Lord of the Rings, uh-huh. and he, he's opposite Gandalf, who is the old Magneto. The, right, right. So he, he's, there's a relationship. He's the king, so he plays the father figure again at Freud's uh, ego. His name's even Vigo. I mean, his name's Vigo <laughs> Mortison, which is like ego death, you know, mort being right. mortality or the... Anyways, I'm rambling. Yeah, that's okay. And of course, the role of Jung in all of this is profound as well. We haven't even mentioned that, but uh, he's, you know, a lot of this was uh, seen by Jung, you know, 60, 70 years ago. So. Yes. So then, yeah. how do you approach the UFO encounters? Have you seen UFOs? Is this is this a metaphor, or are these, you know, profound religious experiences that are happening? to these people genuinely, but non-materially? What is your take on that? Yes, that, that's my take to all of that. <laughs> I, I, you know, first of all, I've never consciously seen a UFO. My, um, uh, my, the book before this one, the book called Authors of the Impossible, 
ends with a UFO sighting that I had as a boy, but which I have no recollection of. It was with my parents in, in northern Nebraska uh, on a family trip. Um, but I I don't have any recollection. I've had profound dreams about UFOs, but no actual sightings. My sense of the UFO phenomenon is that it's a huge basket in which a lot of things have been dumped. So you have UFO encounters that are profoundly religious encounters that are essentially paranormal events. You have UFO encounters that are probably encounters with secret military technology that, that we don't know about yet. You have the UFO encounters that are almost certainly fraudulent and made up. Um, and then you just have the really, really weird stuff that may actually be an encounter with some kind of, of, of technology that we that, that is, is not of this earth, as we say. And it's all thrown into the same loose category of the UFO, and so it's totally confusing. We, we can't make heads or tails of it because all of it seems to be wrapped up together in the same in the same bucket and um and I think that's again why my book was really about popular culture and the paranormal because one of the argument is is that you can't really separate the two you can't you can't just artificially pick out the real paranormal events from the the popular cultural fiction, nor can you peel away the fiction from from the fact they're all. They're all in there together, uh, interpenetrating each other, and and again, that's why I think it's so confusing. So I don't, I don't have a clear answer about UFOs, but I certainly don't dismiss it as 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 simply fraudulent or simply fact. I think it's. Well, it's just it's, amazing to me how Ray Palmer and uh, well, and we'll to break this to you, we're we're at the end of our forty-two minutes, and and thank you so much. Jeffrey, this this was great. Okay, well, I hope I hope it was useful. I I enjoyed it, and uh, let me know when it's up and and when I can listen to it. Okay, well, you have a great day and have a, a great fourth tomorrow. Okay, Take care. thanks. Bye bye.